0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Sandy Springs, Georgia, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Sandy Springs, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Sandy Springs. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well good morning and welcome everyone. I am your host James Orr and today we have another I would say somewhat exciting class. This is sort of the class to get you ready to get a mortgage to buy investment properties. Whether that's doing it as an owner occupant to do like the nomad strategy or house hacking or to go out and just buy straight up non-owner occupant investment properties with, you know, 15% down with PMI or 20% down or 25% down or 30% down or whatever it is you're doing there. So today is sort of like the preparation, like the things you wish you could have known preparing to go get a mortgage. That's what we're going to cover. So number one, it is important, I think, for you to understand the qualification requirements that the lender is going to have for you Way before you are actually about to get the loan. In other words, you should not do this. You should not say to your real estate agent, let's go look at properties tonight. Find the property that you want the first time out accidentally, which happens all the time. And then be scrambling to figure out what you need, what you should have done three months ago in order to get your loan. The time to do all of this work, the time to find out, hey, what am I going to need to provide to you? What are the qualifications for this particular loan program that I'm looking to do? How does it impact me with my specific credit score? And I will tell you, we are in a state of flux. I'm recording this live on April 27th, 2023. And I believe May 1st, a whole bunch of lending changes hit the market. So you really do want to call your lender and find out, hey, what are the requirements going to be for me? How is this going to impact me with my specific credit score, going to get this, whatever it is you're trying to do. And so you need to call your lender. You need to find out exactly what the qualifications will be long before you are out looking at properties ready to buy a house. Um, You really want to take care of this stuff and be, I mean, this is more of a bigger picture, like philosophical thing. You want to be strategic about your real estate investing. You don't want to be just focused in on, okay. The very next thing I need to do, let's just focus in on doing that. No, I think you need to be thinking one, two, three, four, five, six steps ahead, which is why I think you want to go and go through the process we've outlined for the entire real estate investing strategy. Sure, you can do it if you're like under the gun and you feel compelled to really do it right now. Yeah, you can do some things and then kind of like learn as you go, but it is better for you if you have an understanding of the entire process laid out and you can be thinking a couple steps ahead. As you'll see in some of the tips we're going to give you here, it helps if you started this stuff six months, three months, at least a month before you're ready to go so that you can do some things to improve your cash flow, optimize your real estate investing, optimize the loans you're getting, understand like some of the criteria, how these things fit together, how they work, and what your limitations might be so you don't kind of paint yourself into a corner or get yourself in a situation that you don't want to be in. Okay, so step number one is definitely call your lender to find out exactly what the qualifications will be long before you're going to actually apply. And if you're self-employed, this is even more important in my opinion. It is different than being an employee. And I personally have gotten caught up in this. I'll probably tell the story. I've told the story before, but if you haven't heard it before, I'm sure I'll tell the story again in the future where I was going to get a loan and because I was an owner of a company, I got stuck in this situation where I could not qualify for the loan even with amazing income, even with amazing reserves. I ended up having to buy the property. I ended up buying two properties at the same time and having to buy one of the properties for all cash. And the other one, I had to get my parents to co-sign with me. A year later, when everything was kind of like unworked out and they kind of like all cleared up, I was able to just do a refinance on the property. But it was very weird as a 45-year-old man calling my parents and saying, hey, um so really weird things going on here i'm trying to buy two houses i'm gonna buy one of them all cash i don't want to liquidate some other investments to buy the second one cash and i'd really like to have a loan on it would you be willing to co-sign for me on this loan and so i like i don't know i revealed to them like all my stuff about my finances and kind of like talk to them. but anyway i will tell that story another time but realize that when you are self-employed It is different than when you are an employee. The rules are different. They're going to need two years of tax returns. They will need to show increasing profits over those years. Okay? And don't be penny wise and pound foolish. I know there's a lot of folks out there, not saying this is you, but I know there's a lot of folks out there that they think the name of the game is 100% reducing how much money they make by maximizing the expenses they have and showing almost no income so they have almost no taxes on their tax returns. That is what I would call being penny wise, being pound foolish. If you want to be a real estate investor, you need income in order to qualify for loans. Okay. So, maximizing your deductions to minimize your profit and therefore taxes might seem like an amazing idea until you can't qualify for a mortgage. Then it's not such a good idea. Okay. So, if it's a legit expense, write it off and ideally increase your profits so that. You can't maximize, you can't actually write everything off. Be like, look, I'm trying to maximize my, my kind of like tax deductions and everything by having legit expenses, but I'm making so much money that that is not a problem. Ideally, you want that, right? You want to have a, a very profitable business, but you also don't want to like take every single deduction that you can and hurt yourself by not being able to get loans. So this is why I'm telling you, you need to do this stuff way ahead of time. If you're trying to like fix your tax returns, it's hard to go back and fix two years of tax returns to like fix these issues. So you got to be thinking way far ahead to do this. Okay. And that's why it's great that you're taking this class and you're understanding what needs to happen there. Okay. Next tip, know and improve your credit score. So I would recommend you use one of these like free credit score websites. I personally use the creditkarma.com one, although you can use any other ones you want. I'm sure there's other ones out there, but these are sort of like, websites that give you an idea. It's not exact, but it's a really good start. Okay, So you go to these websites, you log in, you can find out approximately what your credit score is. You can find out some of the things that are impacting your credit score, good and bad, and you can work on fixing those things, whatever they happen to be. If you notice on there, there's something ugly that you're like, oh, that's not correct, then go get it fixed. If you got something on there that's ugly, and it is true, and you know that you probably should have paid that bill, maybe you go and that's one of your key areas of focus, because you really do want to improve your credit score. Okay, Now, lenders are typically going to use your middle credit score. There's usually three scores and the lenders are typically going to use your middlemost one. So they're going to ignore the low one, they're going to ignore the high one, and they will use your middle one. There probably are some exceptions to this. I'm sure these policy changes over time, but realize that's what I think you're going to see. Talk to your lender to get the, the definitive for your situation with whenever you're actually doing it. Now, it is a federal law, I believe, that you can request a free copy of each one of your credit reports each year. So... There's three different reports. I don't remember the name of like Equifax, TransUnion, and something else, right? So there's like three different ones, and you could request a copy of them for free once per year for each. So what you could do is you could say, okay, every four months, I'm going to request a copy of a different credit report. And then you could always have a new credit report sent to you every four months, Then what you do is you could look at that credit report, see what's being reported on that one, fix any inaccuracies, address any credit blemishes you have on that, improve it. Then four months later, you pull a different credit report. You ask for another free one, but from a different company because you can get one each year. And then you do the same thing. You fix any inaccuracies. You address any credit blemishes. You try to improve on this. You're like studying this. You're going on websites. You're reading about things, trying to improve it, or you're talking to your lender uh, if they're qualified to be able to help you, which we'll talk about here in a second you're really trying to maximize and improve this. And you're doing this consistently over time to improve this stuff. Okay. Then after you've got to the point where you've requested the three, um, then you can go back and start requesting the first one over again, uh, four months later. So you're constantly cycling through and doing that every four months, if you want to do that. Okay. Now, why am I making such a big deal about knowing and improving your credit score? Because your credit score can impact your interest rate, the mortgage interest rate you can get, which impacts your cash flow. We're in a market where prices have gone up a lot in the last few years. Interest rates are up a lot in the last year plus. Rents are up, but they're not quite up enough to counteract these really, really high prices and the really, really high interest rates so that it's harder than ever to have great cash flow on properties. Okay. You can put more down. Which does improve your credit score and which does improve your, your mortgage interest rate, which does improve cash flow. And you can do all of the other 88 strategies that we have for improving cash flow. However, what I will tell you is one of the factors that improves cash flow is your credit score. Higher credit scores tend to get better interest rates. So it's worthwhile for you to fix this stuff, especially if you plan on doing this repeatedly. You don't wanna have you know, something that you could fix upstream, your credit score, as an example that is gonna have a ongoing, repeated impact that is gonna last for, in some cases, 30 years. You go get a mortgage interest rate in a property, and if you decide that you're not gonna ever sell that property or refinance it away, that's something that sticks with you for 30 years. Now, sure, you could decide to use a strategy where you're paying that thing off early, or you're refinancing out of it, or you're selling the property and getting rid of the loan, but in some cases, when we're optimizing for achieving financial independence, We're choosing to keep loans, even if they're slightly subpar, okay? So improve your credit score because this can impact your mortgage interest rates, which impacts your cash flow. The time to do this is not when you're shopping for a property, okay? You probably can move the needle a little bit while you're shopping for a property, but really, you want to be thinking about this three months, six months, a year, two years ahead of time so that you can get all of your stuff fixed. And you could really optimize this. It's not just like a little bump. It's like the massive changes that you can make. Now, some lenders are qualified to help you improve your credit score. They know what impacts credit score. They've seen it. They've done it. They have like, you know, real world knowledge and they can assist you with this. And I would rely on them. I would lean on them to help you do the things that you need in order to improve your credit score. If they're not qualified, if your lender is unable or unwilling to help you, then you may need to hire a respectable, qualified credit counselor, not one of these fly-by-night companies that's gonna tell you to do something that's gonna ultimately harm you in the end. You really wanna focus in on someone who is legit. And you're gonna have to ask for recommendations and you know use your, your kind of wisdom to figure out like who that is, because I can't tell you. Okay, now, here's a big warning for you. The things that improve your credit score are not always the logical or obvious choices. For example, you may think, hey, I'll just close this account. That should help improve my credit score. Uh Uh-uh, not always. Maybe that account is one that you've had that have had, that you've had for a long period of time, And because it's got a small balance, but it's a small balance on a very large credit line that you've got there, that may be actually pulling up your credit score. You can't just make these things and say, oh, that's logical or obvious. And you may think, hey, I'll just pay off everything. That'll fix my credit score, right? I'm tired of this stuff. I just won't have any balances on anything that I have credit with, and then I'll close all my accounts. No, 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 no. That could actually lower your credit score. So you got to use somebody who really understands what's going on and what things are actually impacting your specific credit score. And you can do this over time with the help of a professional, your lender or either, either your lender, if they know what they're doing, or a credit counselor, or in some cases, maybe your real estate agent does know, or you know, someone else knows as well, but be, be careful, okay? Now, when you're not using your credit score, lock it down. Lock it down until you're ready to use it. This is a, a major asset for you. Your ability to get these mortgages is a huge factor in you being able to successfully invest in real estate. Yes, you can do it if you don't have credit yourself, if your credit is bad, but it is so much easier, so much better if you're able to go and use your own credit score in order to qualify for these properties on your own. It it eliminates a lot of headaches, a lot of hard work. So you really want to protect this. You want to make sure that you protect your credit. And one way to do that is to lock that stuff down. Do not leave it open. Don't allow people to go. You want to make it so that it's inconvenient for you to go buy anything with credit where you got to call up and you got to say, okay, unlock my credit score for 24 hours so that you know this company that I'm using to get whatever loan you're doing, a car loan or furniture loan or whatever you're doing there, or don't do those at all. But I mean, really, you could go and do this and lock it down after you're done. Immediately lock it back down. Protect yourself. Protect your credit. Protect the credit of your family members too. And this is not just you, but if you love somebody, lock help your parents lock down their credit score, right? Because you don't know when they're going to get, when they're going to start to get a little bit confused and they may do something that they will regret. Help protect them, okay? All right, so lock it down until you're ready to use it. Now- Let's talk a little bit about debt to income. Debt to income is a calculation that the lenders use in order to help qualify you for loans. It's a ratio of how much debt, your monthly payments on all the debt you have, compared to your income. And it's not, it doesn't always work the way that some people think that it works. So you gotta be really, really careful about this. Like how does negative cash flow work? Does that count as, you know, more debt on your properties that count as negative income. Like, so there's some calculations we did it. I did an entire like two hour class on this. I'll put a link in the show notes or something like that so that uh, you guys can access because I can't reteach a two hour class, but I will tell you understanding your debt to income, how what it is for you like right now, you know, walk with a lender and help, help them walk you through like calculating what yours is and understand what goes into the calculation. Your lower the debt to income is the better. Now, when we do like our modeling for like the real estate financial planner, you've probably seen it when you go to your city, kind of like modeling and you've seen all that stuff. One of the things that we actually calculate and we show for the entire model is what the debt to income is for that person doing that particular strategy. And it's one of the things we measure as a measure of risk. The lower your debt to income is, the less risky the strategy is for you. Now, sometimes a strategy would be really risky early on and then way less risky later on. And then some strategies are kind of like moderate risk in the beginning moderate risk in the middle, and a moderate risk at the end. And you have to choose, like, which one of those is going to be better for you. There's ones that I think I prefer, right? I'm okay taking a little bit more risk early on, knowing that I'm going to be way less risky later. But you may decide, hey, look, I'd rather take a medium amount of risk now, a medium amount of risk later, and a medium amount of risk later on, like, at the end, right? So you can decide, like, how you want to structure this depending on your strategy and what your overall financial situation is. Okay. So I I just wanted to point out that you should understand debt to income, get with your lender, have them help you calculate it, understand what goes into it, what's impacting your debt to income. What are the levers you can move to improve on it? You know, should you eliminate certain debts? Should you eliminate or improve on certain incomes? in order to get better at this, you know, is it better for you to kind of like improve your negative cash flow on a property or does that not matter as much as you should work on something else? Understand what that means to you and go watch that second class where I go into like two hours worth of detail on this, how the calculation is done. I'll give you some examples and all the things that impact it. All right, the other thing while you're kind of preparing for your getting your mortgage is to save money. And a lot of folks think it's just saving money for down payment. And I think that's a large part of it most of the time, right? Your down payment is going to be a big chunk of what you're saving money for. And sometimes having more down payments to put more down will significantly improve your cash flow. I think there's a lot of folks obsessed about cash flow on properties. And, and probably for really good reason. It's not the only thing, but it is a major important thing if you're using cash flow to achieve financial independence to focus in on cash flow when you buy rental properties, right? So I think a lot of folks are focused in on cash flow, and we tend to focus a lot on cash flow. I mean, a lot of the classes we do are about optimizing your cash flow on your rental properties, like the eighty-eight strategies and all the different variations on that and all the different things we can do to improve cash flow. But one of the things we talk about when we talk about improving cash flow is putting more money down and the multiplied impact that that can have. Sometimes it's just reducing the amount you're borrowing. You put more down, you borrow less. So your monthly payments lower. That means your cash flow is improved. Sometimes by putting more down, we kind of pass a threshold for the lender where that actually changes and improves the interest rate. You know, the interest rate for someone borrowing, you know, 80% loan to value is higher than someone borrowing, you know, eight uh, 75% loan to value, you know, putting 20% down versus putting 25% down. Your cash flow will improve because the interest rate changes from that. It's not just that you're borrowing less, it's interest rate improvement as well. So having more down payment can improve that, not just borrowing less, but sometimes it'll also eliminate PMI. If you were going to put 15% down, but now you can actually go in and put 20% down and get rid of PMI, that's pretty significant. And we've talked a lot in the past about how, you know, what is the return, the extra return you're getting on this extra down payment? And is it worthwhile to do that? We've done some classes recently on how to do those calculations. So go watch those as well. But while you're preparing to get your loan, you're saving money so that you have this down payment. In addition, you're saving money so that you can, at your option, if it makes sense to you, choose to prepay any private mortgage insurance. If you're doing a loan like you're doing house hacking or nomad, you're putting, you know, three and a half percent down to buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex with an FHA loan, or maybe you're even buying a single family home with three and a half percent down FHA, or maybe you're going and you're doing like a nothing down VA loan, which is not gonna have PMI, but you know, maybe you're doing all these different things where you have these low down payment options below 20% down, and you're going to have private mortgage insurance on those, you want to have the choice. You want to be able to do the math and say, hey, it's mathematically better. It improves my cash flow significantly if I can prepay this PMI. And prepaying PMI is whatever it is. You've got to call a lender to find out, but maybe it's $5,000, maybe it's $7,000, whatever it happens to be for you. And you want to have that option. You don't want to be forced to pay monthly PMI because you don't have the choice. You didn't save enough money to do that. You wanna be optimizing your cash flow by deciding whether you do this. So saving money to prepay PMI is important. Making sure you have enough money, you save the money so that you have the closing costs and you don't have to negotiate and have seller concessions because it's not, it's not doing seller concessions by choice because it optimizes your investment, which it often does, but you wanna actually have the choice of you paying closing costs yourself to improve cash flow, not raising the price and getting the seller to include some seller concessions in there. Okay. So saving money for down payment, prepaying PMI, closing costs, and maybe as we covered in a separate class and like multiple times, is buying down your interest rate. It may make sense for you to have extra money to buy down your interest rate because that could improve your cash flow a lot. So taking that extra money to do that. And then, of course, of course, you would not ever buy an investment property without having adequate reserves at least six months in my opinion now you may decide hey look i'm liquid in a whole bunch of other ways i feel really really comfortable only having three months of cash liquid reserves that's your prerogative it does add a considerable amount of risk but i think at least six months of reserves and i've been making some arguments lately to have 12 months of reserves and i i'll talk about that when i go over the whole reserves class but you should be saving money and having reserves because i'm going to use strong language here okay you would be stupid To invest in real estate without having reserves okay it's you're asking for trouble it's like it's like intentionally going and putting yourself in harm's way because you just didn't plan you got to plan you got to have reserves so make sure you do some type of reserves invest make sure you save the money in order to reserves and then finally saving money so that if you're buying a property and you're putting less down and you're having some negative cash flow because you didn't put enough down. If you put enough down, you probably wouldn't have the negative cash flow, but you're choosing to put less down. You know, maybe it's 0% down or 3.5% down or, you know, for FHA loan or 5% down for conventional financing. And you're deciding you're going to have some, or maybe you're putting 20% down and your market is such that it's really hard to make properties cash flow, even with 20% down or 25% down. I've seen that a lot, right? So maybe you have negative cash flow. Well, one of the ways you can make your investment more conservative less risky is you can set aside whatever negative cash flow you're likely to have. And you can calculate out how much that negative cash flow will be. you will be like, look, the first year, it's whatever it is, negative $200 a month. But I think rents are going to go up about $50 in year two. So the next year it's going to be negative $150 a month. And I think that rents will go up another $50 when I renew the lease the year after that. Okay. Well now it's only going to be a negative $100. And then the next year rents go up 50 bucks and your negative cash flow is going to be about $50 a month. And then the year after that, you raise rents $50 and you don't have negative cash flow at all. Well, you could sum up $200 a month in negative cash flow for the first year, $150 a month in negative cash flow in the year. Second year, $100 a month in negative cash flow in the third year, $50 a month in negative cash flow in the fourth year, and then zero from then on. And you could say, what is the sum of all of that negative cash flow until this property is actually likely to be very positive? And you could set that money aside in a separate account, maybe right next to your reserves, might not be the worst thing in the world, and then have that money just sitting there because you know you've got negative cash flow coming. So why not set it aside? It's probably cheaper to set that negative cash flow aside than it would be to put more down and down payment and actually get rid of the negative cash flow. So you could do this calculation, right? And we will do this calculation in future classes because it's a calculation I do. But you can calculate out, hey, if I put this amount down, that reduces my monthly payment by whatever it is. It's about the general rule of thumb is for every $10,000 you put down you end up saving about $50 a month in your in your uh, monthly payment so if you set aside you know $10,000 in order to reduce your your uh, debt your monthly payment by $50 that would save you $50 a monthly payment but if you look at your negative cash flow you look you know if i save up you know, twenty four hundred dollars in year one, and uh, eighteen hundred dollars in year two, and twelve hundred dollars in year three, and six hundred dollars in year four. If I do my math right, that's probably around six grand. I don't know exactly what it is. I'd have to go add them up. But just off the top of my head, it's probably about six thousand dollars. Well, six thousand dollars to get rid of like your negative cash flow risk, right? It, it doesn't completely eliminate it, but it really reduces it when you set all the negative cash flow aside up front versus putting an extra ten thousand down just to save fifty bucks. Might be better to set that $6,000 aside for your negative cash flow. And that's what I'm talking about, okay? All right, so saving money, down payment, prepaid PMI, closing costs, buying down your interest rate, reserves, and negative cash flow, setting aside any negative cash flow you have. All right, let's talk about what you're likely to be requested in form of documentation from your lender in order to get the loan. They're likely to ask you for a loan application and or personal financial statement, okay? They're usually going to ask you for a color copy of your ID, some type of state issued ID, any recent W2 and pay stubs, any proof of any other sources of income you're getting as well. So if you're getting some type of income from a side hustle or whatever, they will likely ask you for that as well. The last 2 years of tax returns. So start early, make sure they're done good, done right, done correctly, and that you're optimizing for not just, you know, saving everything on your taxes, but being able to get a loan last two years tax returns, they're gonna look at those. All your bank and your investment, your IRA account statements, usually about three months worth, could be one month, could be three months, but usually I'd save about three months worth knowing that that's coming here. They also wanna see documentation of where you're getting the down payment from. You can't just borrow the down payment from mom and dad. You have to document where that's coming from. Documentation of any large deposits in your account. You got a lump sum from something, they're gonna wanna know about that. And then on each one of your properties, any of the leases, proof of insurance, any HOA documentation for the HOA and payments related to that, mortgage statements for all the properties you own. And then if you close on any properties recently, they're going to want to see the HUD one or settlement statements for all the recent purchases. So that's a good general list of what you're going to, what you might expect to see a lender request from you. So now you know why don't you start putting it together in a nice, easy to find, organized place so that when the lender requests it, it's all in one spot, which is what I'm going to talk about next. And I will point out one other thing about the uh, list of documents that your lender may have additional requests. They may have less requests, but if they have additional requests, you have two choices. You can get all worked up and upset over it. Oh, why do they need this and complain or anything like that? You could just say in advance, Hey, I know that they're going to request other stuff. I'm just prepared. I'm going to be, I'm going to just give them what they need because they're my quote, partner in this. They're willing to loan me 100% of the purchase price, 95% of the purchase price, 80% of the purchase price, 75% of the purchase price. They're coming to the table with a large chunk of money to help you acquire these assets, to help you acquire these real estate investments. They're a financial partner for you. And your financial partner says, Hey, I need a copy of your cable bill. And you're like, why do you need a copy of my cable bill? Or you could just say, sure, partner, I'll show you my cable bill. No worries. Here you go. Whatever you need to see. All right. Organize your files. So you know, you're going to need this stuff. So why don't you get organized and stay organized? Store all the files that your lender will likely request from you in a well-labeled organized folder on something like Dropbox. And I use Dropbox because not only does it keep a backup and it stays organized and stuff on your local computer and any other things you need, like if you're out with your lender and they need something, you can send it via your phone or your computer or go home and do something, but you can also share the entire folder with them and then they'll have the most up-to-date stuff that they need. They'll probably request you the link again, but you you can give them access to it and just have your files organized that way. Keep that folder updated with your latest tax return. So as you file a new tax return, just put a copy in there. Any pay stubs you get from work, scan them or, or use them from your email, save them into that folder, store them there. Any property records you have that you know you're going to need to share with them, you know, put that in there. And I have a typo here. i will just go ahead and correct that. Um, as you get updated versions, save them there. The way all your files, that way, all your files that you need to send a lender are all in one place. And this is especially helpful if you know you're going to be getting loans regularly or you're going to be buying a bunch of properties all in a row and you're going to need to use this like more than one time. It'll really help you. Okay. In conclusion, understand what the rules of the game are, what your expectations and the qualification standards are for getting loans. And then get and stay organized to make applying for loans fast, easy, and low stress. And I'll add one other thing. Start early. Be thinking strategically ahead of time. Okay? Start early. And think strategically. Okay? That's all I got for you. This has been James Orr. Hope you enjoyed this class. I definitely enjoyed it. And uh, we will talk to you at the next class. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Sandy Springs is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Sandy Springs that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.